Chapter 4 The Banking System Section 1 Definition and Relevance of the Banking System The best definition of the modern banking system I have seen was that given by R.S. Sayers, quote, Banks are institutions whose debts, usually referred to as, quote, bank deposits, end quote, are commonly accepted in final settlement for other people's debts, end quote. This is a precise definition of the modern banking system as far as it goes. However, in order to understand the banking system and how it affects the economy, we need to understand the mechanism by which the bank's debts come to be accepted in final settlement of other people's debts. Furthermore, the relevance of this subject is far wider than the practice of banking itself. Given the importance of the role that banks play in the modern economy, it is essential to a proper understanding of how the economy works as a whole that one has a proper grasp of the basic principles upon which the modern banking system operates. In order to gain an understanding of this, we need to go back to the birth of modern banking in the 17th century. Before doing so, however, it will be instructive to look briefly at the biblical teaching on just weights and measures in order to gain a proper moral perspective on the issue of currency debasement, which is at the heart of the modern banking system. Section 2. Biblical Teaching on the Use of Just Weights and Measures In the 8th century BC, towards the end of the reign of King Uzziah of Judah, the prophet Isaiah rebuked the people of Jerusalem sharply for their crimes, corrupt morals, fraudulent business practices, and neglect of the poor and needy. This is what Isaiah said of Jerusalem, quote, How is the faithful city become an harlot? It was full of judgment, that is, justice, Stephen C. Perks. Righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. Thy silver is become dross, thy wine mixed with water, thy princes are rebellious, and companions of thieves. Everyone loveth gifts, and followeth after rewards. They judge not the fatherless, neither doth the cause of the widow come unto them. End quote. Isaiah 1, verses 21 to 23. At the time, coins were not in use as a form of money. However, silver was used as money, and when something was brought for silver, the purchaser would weigh out the silver in front of the vendor. Compare Genesis 23, verse 16, Jeremiah 32, verse 9. In this way, small bars or ingots of silver would be used as a medium of exchange. When Isaiah says, quote, Thy silver is become dross, end quote, he was referring to a process whereby base metals, for example tin, were mixed with the silver, thereby decreasing the silver content of the metal, while, at the same time, increasing the total number of ingots that could be produced. When this was done, the appearance of the ingot would be that of silver, even though a percentage of it was tin, which is a less valuable metal than silver. This debased ingot could then be passed off as pure silver in exchange for goods and services. By mixing tin with silver in this way, the debaser could increase his money supply and buy goods and services cheaper than he could were he to pay them with pure silver. The one receiving the money would most likely not be able to tell the difference between pure silver ingots and debased ingots containing tin. The Bible is very strict about the use of fair weights and measures. Here are some of the laws covering weights and measures. Quote, 
ye shall do no unrighteousness in judgment, in meat yard, in weight or in measure, just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just tin shall ye have. I am the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore shall ye observe all my statutes and all my judgments, and do them. I am the Lord. End quote. Leviticus 19 verses 35 to 37. Quote, thou shalt not have in thy bag divers wits, a great and a small. Thou shalt not have in thine house divers measures, a great and a small. But thou shalt have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure shalt thou have, that thy days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. For all that do such things, and all that do unrighteously, are an abomination unto the Lord thy God. End quote. Deuteronomy 25, verses 13 to 16. These laws forbid fraud. When tin is mixed with silver, and then made into ingots of a particular weight, the silver content is less than it appears to be. The weight of silver contained in a given bar is less than the total weight of the bar. To use these debased ingots as a medium of exchange under the pretense that they are pure silver is fraud and a direct breach of God's law. Such practices are unacceptable to God. Quote, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord. End quote. Proverbs 11 verse 1. What Isaiah condemns in chapter 1 verses 21 to 23, therefore, is precisely the same phenomenon as the debasement of coinage. Such fraud is immoral and forbidden by God's law, whether it is practiced by individuals or by governments. Section 3 Inflation and the Debasement of Currency We are led to believe today that inflation is a general and sustained rise in the level of prices. This is not so, although inflation usually leads to rising prices. Inflation is an increase in the money supply. An increase in the money supply in turn causes prices generally to rise, other things being equal. When inflation is caused by the debasement of monetary metal or by counterfeiting of any kind, it is a direct transgression of God's law, as stated in the Eighth Commandment, and further expounded in Leviticus 19 verses 35 to 37 and Deuteronomy 25 verses 13 to 16. These laws clearly require the use of fair weights and measures and forbid all forms of deceit in economic and monetary affairs. We have a long history of inflation caused by the debasement of currency. At the end of the 13th century, for example, the weight of the English silver penny was 22 grains troy. By the beginning of the 17th century, it had fallen to 7 and 3 quarters, a reduction in weight of nearly 65%. For a government with sufficient power to enforce its will, debasement of coinage has always been an easy and favourite method of meeting unforeseen financial liabilities. In the reign of Henry VIII, for instance, the weight of the penny was reduced by one-sixth from 12 to 10 grains. Henry VIII also debased the gold coinage, reducing the weight of the sovereign from 240 to 192 grains and its fineness from 23.75 to 20 carat gold. There was, consequently, throughout Henry's reign, and particularly in the two decades following his debasement of the coinage, the 1540s and 1550s, a sustained and widespread increase in the cost of living. Between the succession of Henry VIII in 1509, 
in 1558, when Elizabeth came to the throne, prices of foodstuff generally had nearly quadrupled. From the point of view of the modern phenomenon of inflation, however, the crucial step came in the 17th century with the development of fractional reserve banking by the goldsmiths. Section 4. The Origin of Fractional Reserve Banking The history of modern banking goes back to the reign of Charles I in the period just before the outbreak of the Civil War. Normally, the merchants kept their gold in the Tower of London. In 1640, Charles I was short of money. He closed the mint and seized £20,000 of merchants' bullion in the tower, agreeing to return it only when he had extracted a forced loan of £40,000 from its owners on the security of the customs. Naturally, confidence in the tower as a place of safe deposit was destroyed by this, and the merchants and moneyed men looked elsewhere for a safe place to store their money. This business fell to the goldsmiths, whose strong rooms offered relative safety from such political outrages. As bankers, the goldsmiths developed a number of important techniques for transferring money and creating credit within the economy. The first of these was the banknote. When someone deposited his money with a goldsmith for safekeeping, he was issued with a receipt for the said amount. It soon became apparent that it was much easier to pay for goods and services by handing over these receipts than by withdrawing gold or silver from the goldsmith's strongroom which would then be redeposited with another or even the same goldsmith. Consequently, these receipts, or, quote, running cash notes, end quote, as they were called, began to circulate as money. They were essentially claims to a given amount of money deposited with a certain goldsmith, bearing a promise to pay the bearer on demand the sum specified on them. As the use of these running cash notes increased, They were issued in standard units such as £5 and £10. These notes were the forerunners of the modern banknote. A second development in banking practice came when it was realised that payments could be made without the use of banknotes either. A letter instructing the goldsmith to pay out a certain amount of gold or silver from one's own stock to a third party was all that was needed. If the one to whom the payment was to be made already had a deposit with the same goldsmith as the one making the payment or was prepared to make a deposit with the same goldsmith, the money could be transferred by simply debiting one account and crediting the other. This kind of transaction was the forerunner of the modern cheque. These early cheques were in circulation in the latter half of the 17th century, but they really came into more extensive use after the Act of 1708 limited the issue of banknotes by banks other than the Bank of England. The third and most important development came when the goldsmiths began the practice of fractional reserve banking. In any other walk of life, this kind of practice would be known by another name, but it is a peculiar fact of economic life that men will not acknowledge the phenomenon of fractional reserve banking for what it really is. Fraud Only a certain proportion of the gold and silver deposited with the goldsmiths was, at any one time, being withdrawn and used in circulation as cash. The rest was simply sitting in their vaults, gathering dust, although it was represented by the goldsmiths' notes, which function in the economy in the same way that the gold would have done had it been in circulation. The notes simply replaced the gold. The goldsmiths soon realised that 
Once their reputation as bankers had been established and there was considerable public confidence in their notes, they could loan out, at interest, this stock of gold not normally in circulation. This meant that they could offer interest on money deposited with them for safekeeping and thereby attract more customers, enabling them to expand their business. George Chandler commented on this aspect of the goldsmith's business. Quote, After the Civil War, the practice increased of encouraging people to deposit money with the goldsmiths by allowing them interest. This was a great step forward in modern banking and was practiced by Blackwell. Country gentlemen began to deposit their rents with him and servants their master's money, which had been placed in their custody for safekeeping. Pepys refers in his diary to his delight when he first received interest on the money he had deposited. End quote. However, once the goldsmith had taken this step, the total amount of claims for gold against him was greater than his ability to meet those claims. In other words, he was insolvent. This was hardly the, quote, great step forward in modern banking, end quote, that Chandler claims for it. In fact, this practice was the root cause of the unstable economic conditions that blight the economy to this day. Suppose, for example, that a goldsmith has £1,000 of gold deposited with him for safekeeping. He observes that only a small proportion of this gold is withdrawn for use in circulation. As some customers withdraw gold, others are depositing it and he needs no more than £1,000 at any one time in order to maintain an adequate cash reserve. He therefore loans out the remaining £900 of gold in his vaults. The important point to grasp here is that although this gold was not previously in circulation as gold coin, it was nonetheless represented by running cash notes or receipts to the value of £900 which functioned in the economy in the same way that the gold would have functioned had it been in circulation. The goldsmith has now loaned out the £900 of gold previously kept in his vaults, which was represented by these notes. He now has claims against him for £1,000 of gold in the form of notes, promises to pay the bearer on demand, but only £1,000 of gold reserved to meet these claims. From his original stock of £1,000 of gold, he has therefore created an extra £9,000 in the form of running cash notes, that is, bank notes. As long as public confidence remains high and his customers have no reason to suspect what he is doing, they will probably not all claim their gold at the same time. But the goldsmith's ability to create money does not stop here. Once he observes that less than, say, 10% of the gold deposited with him is being withdrawn for use in circulation at any one time, he can make loans using his own notes rather than the £9,000 of actual gold stored in his vaults. If, as in the example above, he starts with £1,000 of gold, he can issue extra notes for up to £9,000. The £1,000 of gold in his vaults then functions in the same way that the £100 of gold not loaned out in the first example functioned, that is, it becomes merely a cash reserve. Again, as long as there is public confidence in his trustworthiness and in his ability to meet his liabilities, he is safe. But, in fact, he is not able to meet his liabilities. He has issued multiple notes that are circulating in the economy as claims against the same amount of gold. In fact, he has claims against him for £10,000 of gold but has only £1,000 of gold 
reserved to meet those claims. This kind of banking is called fractional reserve banking. The amount of gold reserved for meeting the goldsmith's liabilities represents only a fraction of the total claims for gold against him in the form of notes. The goldsmith is able to meet only a fraction of his liabilities, therefore. He has created notes containing a promise to pay the bearer on demand a certain sum of gold or silver, but he is unable to honour that promise. He has up to nine times more liabilities than he is able to meet. Section 5. Problems with the Fractional Reserve System There are a number of important criticisms to be levelled against the Fractional Reserve System. In the first place, this kind of banking practice is quite obviously fraudulent because up to 90% of the goldsmith's notes are bogus claims. If everyone holding these notes were to claim their gold at the same time, the goldsmith, unable to meet the demand, would be declared bankrupt. The goldsmith is therefore making an immoral profit by loaning out other people's money or else using it as a basis for creating a vast amount of IOUs in the form of banknotes that cannot be honoured without their permission and without informing them of the considerable risks involved. When confidence in the goldsmith fails, the holders of these banknotes will attempt to claim their gold, but not everyone will succeed in doing so before the goldsmith is declared insolvent, and hence a large number of people will be defrauded of what rightfully belongs to them. The action of everyone trying to claim their gold at once is called a run on the bank. The first recorded incident of such a run on a bank occurred in 1667, following the defeat of the English fleet by a Dutch squadron in the Medway and the bombardment of Sheerness. The immoral profits made in the form of interest by this kind of banking cannot be construed as a legitimate reward for the taking of risks involved with lending money. This is not to say that lending money at interest is wrong per se. The fact that people value present economic goods more than they do the same goods at a future date makes interest inescapable. Lending money at interest is a legitimate practice since the Bible allows men to charge interest, though not in all circumstances. The point to note about the fractional reserve banking system is that the goldsmith, in effect, loans out money that he does not have. He creates the money that he lends at interest by issuing unbacked banknotes that function in the economy just like money. These banknotes, once they have entered the economy, represents wealth that neither the goldsmith nor the one who borrows them from him has the right to dispose of. The goldsmith makes his profit out of a fraud. Looked at from another point of view, the goldsmith has monetized his debts, since each note he issues is an IOU, a claim against him for a certain amount of gold that he is obligated to pay the bearer on demand. By issuing unbacked notes, he has contracted debts, consisting of claims against him for money that he does not have, which function in the economy as money. Second, this kind of banking practice violates an important biblical principle, namely that one should not contract multiple debts against the same security. Quote, If thou lend money to any of my people that is poor by thee, thou shalt not be to him as an usurer, neither shalt thou lay up upon him usury. If thou at all take thy neighbour's raiment to pledge, thou shalt deliver it unto him, by that the sun goeth down. 
for that is his covering only. It is his raiment for his skin. Wherein shall he sleep? And it shall come to pass when he crieth unto me that I will hear, for I am gracious. End quote. Exodus 22, verses 25 to 27. Compassion demanded that when a poor man borrowed anything against the security of his only coat, and the coat was then deposited in the custody of the creditor, it had to be returned to him at night since he had nothing else to sleep in. But, upon rising, the coat was to be handed over again to the creditor as security for the loan. As a result, the debtor could not use the coat as a security for a second loan. This practice of lodging the security for a loan with the creditor meant that it was not possible to acquire multiple debts against the same security. This limited a poor man's ability to acquire debt. G. North comments on this law, quote, The collateral, sh- quote, surety in this case, is a benefit to the creditor only indirectly. Its real function is to limit the indebtedness of the borrower. The man who needs a loan is permitted to indebt himself and his family only up to the value of his collateral. His immediate property determines the extent of the mortgage on his future. While his collateral is in the possession of one creditor, it cannot simultaneously be used as collateral for additional loans from other creditors. The benefit to the creditor is indirect. His possession of the collateral during the day guarantees him that the debtor is not in debt beyond his probable capacity to repay. The size of the loan, and therefore the extent of the debtor's enslavement, is limited by the debtor's general economic capacities. He is forbidden to indebt himself too far. End quote. In principle, Exodus 22 verses 25 to 27 forbids multiple indebtedness and, therefore, the kind of fraud involved in the fractional reserve banking system. When a goldsmith issues claims in the form of notes or creates demand deposits that can be drawn upon by cheque, he creates debts, claims against him for gold. If the gold stored in his vaults covers only a fraction of these liabilities, he is multiply indebted and unable to honour fully his promise to pay out on demand the gold deposited by his creditors, should they all exercise their right to redeem their notes or withdraw their deposits at the same time. Fractional reserve banking is therefore, in principle, a transgression of the law governing debt in Scripture. Third, this kind of banking is also a debasement of currency and inherently inflationary. The goldsmith has increased the amount of money in circulation. Though a large percentage of his banknotes are not backed by gold, they still function in the economy as money because the unsuspecting public believes them to be redeemable for gold and therefore people are willing to use them as a medium of exchange. As these unbacked notes filter through into the economy, the value of money falls other things being equal. This is because the value of money, like that of any other good, is subject to supply and demand. Goods that are scarce are more valuable than those that are available in more abundant supply. When the supply of money is increased, its value per unit falls because it is then less scarce. By issuing unbacked notes, the goldsmith has increased the amount of money in circulation, but he has not increased the amount of wealth within the economy. He has simply brought about a situation in which the same amount of wealth is represented by a greater supply of money. 
but the goldsmith has increased the purchasing power and thus the wealth of those who borrow from him by issuing them with unbacked notes. This increase in wealth for those who borrow and spend into circulation the newly created money is offset by a decrease in the wealth of the rest of the money-holding population. Those who do not borrow the unbacked notes still have the same amount of money, but once the inflation has run its course in the economy, with the consequent effect this has on the aggregate level of prices, their money is worth less in terms of the goods it will buy. Purchasing power. The goldsmith, by inflating the money supply, does not create more wealth. What he does is to redistribute it to those who borrow his newly created banknotes. This is quite unjust. It is, in reality, a form of theft. The goldsmith has not broken into anyone's house and stolen their goods, but he has, nonetheless, defrauded others by debasing the currency. This is what happens. Inflation of the money supply leads to an aggregate rise in the level of prices, other things being equal, though there is a time lag during which the effects of the inflation slowly filter through into the economy. Initially, the demand for certain goods increases while the supply remains unchanged. Prices rise, therefore, until supply once again meets demand. Those who are forced to pay higher prices for these goods then raise the price of the goods and services they sell in order to maintain their income in real terms. This process is eventually repeated throughout the whole economy. But not everyone is able to do this, at lot at least not on a level that would make up for the loss of purchasing power caused by the debasement. This is because inflation affects a redistribution of wealth within society to those who initially have access to the new money and away from those who do not. The effect of an aggregate rise in the level of prices will be to price some consumers out of the market for certain goods. For example, in an inflationary economy, those on fixed wages will have to pay higher prices for the essentials of life. This will affect their discretionary income and therefore their overall standard of living. They will have to cut back on the amount of money they spend on non-essential goods in order to allocate funds to essentials, the prices of which, as a result of inflation, have risen, even though their own incomes have not risen accordingly. Thus, service providers and manufacturers and retailers of some goods may not be able to raise prices in line with inflation and stay in business. On the other hand, those initially having access to the new money benefit by having increased purchasing power. They will be able to afford higher prices. Not everyone is affected by inflation in the same way. Some service providers and manufacturers will benefit from this. That is, they will experience a boom. Inflation affects an overall reconfiguration of market conditions. Although there is a rise in the aggregate level of prices, it is not an even rise. Not all prices rise together or to the same extent, and some may not rise at all. Other things being equal, for example, no price controls, there is, therefore, a general rise in prices after an increase in the money supply. This is because the supply of goods and services remains the same, while the supply of money has risen. Assuming all the money circulating within the economy will be used to purchase all the available goods and services, prices generally must rise until equilibrium between supply and demand are re-established. In other words, 
Goods and services eventually find a new price level at which all the money circulating within the economy is used up. The important thing to remember is that not everyone gets the use of the new money simultaneously. The fractional reserve banking system produces, therefore, a permanent redistribution of wealth to those who are prepared to borrow the new money. Those who borrow the new money are able to purchase goods and services that previously they could not afford. It might be objected that no permanent redistribution of wealth has accrued to those who borrow the new money, since they will still have to pay off their debt eventually. But this is not entirely true, because the money with which they will pay off their debt is debased money. It is worth less when they pay off their debt than when they borrowed it. Although the wealth redistributed to them is not equivalent to what they borrowed, a permanent redistribution of wealth has, nonetheless, taken place. Inflation, therefore, favours those who are able and willing to borrow at the expense of those who are not able or willing to do so. Those who are prepared to gamble their future earnings on the rate of inflation, that is, on the future devaluation of the currency, benefit at the expense of the prudent and thrifty, whose savings are plundered by inflation. Fourth, this situation is complicated by the fact that it is impossible to determine precisely to what extent the inflation has disturbed the economy. No accurate predictions or assessments can be made about inflation because the resulting situation affects the decisions that people make about their economic life. There is no way of collecting or assessing the information needed in order to make accurate statements about how and to what extent inflation affects the way people make economic decisions. Our inability to assess the effects of inflation in this way makes any attempts to redress the injustice caused by inflation for everyone affected by it virtually impossible. Fifth, the influx of new money creates an artificial situation within the economy. The spending power generated by the new money affects industries in a way in which they would not otherwise have been affected. The situation resulting from this kind of artificial stimulation of the economy does not constitute the best use of the scarce resources available to society. This is because the price mechanism, which provides the information necessary for the efficient allocation of scarce resources, is corrupted. That is, the information it provides to the economy, for example, the cost of goods and services, is incorrect in real terms. Goods and services initially appear to be cheaper than, in fact, they are. And this information only gets corrected adjusted to take account of inflation, after a redistribution of wealth has been effected within the economy. In times of sustained expansion of the money supply, the price mechanism cannot be relied upon as a trustworthy guide to the value of goods and services, and there is no other mechanism known to man that is able to provide this kind of information. There is, therefore, an uneconomic or inefficient allocation of resources within the economy. People and businesses live beyond their means, though without realising it, while the economy is booming and, consequently, have to economise drastically when recession hits. This situation is artificial and the corresponding allocation of resources inefficient because the spending power generated by the extra money does not represent an increase in real wealth, but it does give the impression of greater wealth. 
those who borrow the new money are able to spend it on goods and services that they would not otherwise have been able to afford, people begin to think that they are wealthier than they are. They have more money, but they fail to realize that they are no better off, perhaps even worse off in real terms, because the depreciation of the monetary unit has led to a rise in the cost of living. This initiates a process of decapitalization within society, which, if not checked, will eventually have dire consequences. By the time people begin to realize what is happening, the damage has been done. Scarce resources needed for use in industries that are vital to the health of the economy generally have been misused to provide a standard of living that is beyond the means available to society. This standard of living, therefore, must eventually come to an abrupt end. The result is that in times of severe economic crisis, there is often an excess of unessential or luxury goods, while at the same time there is a critical shortage of essential goods. Inflation, therefore, leads to a misallocation of scarce resources and capital, which inevitably results in economic depression. A depression is simply a period of time during which the economy readjusts to a situation in which there are less resources and capital available to society. There is, therefore, a general lowering of standards of living during such times. This reduction in the availability of scarce resources and capital is a result of their misuse or misallocation during the period of inflation. The monetary authorities can for a time avoid recession by continuing to inflate the money supply, but the rate of inflation increases exponentially with every new injection of money into the economy. A slump is postponed for a time, but eventually the consequences become more serious and destructive for the economy. In severe inflation such as that experienced by the Weimar Republic early in the 20th century, the economy eventually experiences a crack-up boom, that is, the monetization of the currency and the development of a barter economy. Wherever this kind of banking practice is allowed to continue, society will not be able to escape the continuous cycle of booms and slumps, that is, the business cycle, which characterized so much of 20th century economic life. These criticisms are equally applicable to the modern banking system. They have been explained in terms of the practices of the goldsmiths because this provides a much simpler model with which to work. Section 6. The Modern Banking System The modern banking system, though more complicated, is not essentially different in principle from that practiced by the goldsmiths. The most important difference lies in the role that the Bank of England and the Treasury play in the economy. The Bank of England was established as a joint stock company in 1694 by Act of Parliament. The purpose of the bank from the beginning was to finance government borrowing and manage government debt. The government's need for money in this instance was occasioned by war with France. The whole of the bank's original capital of £1,200,000 was to be loaned to the government at a yearly return of £100,000, that is, 8% on the loan per annum plus, say, £4,000 per annum management fee. In return for the loan, the subscribers were granted a charter authorising them to act as a joint stock company with limited liability under the name of, quote, the Governor and Company of the Bank of England, end quote. The bank was permitted to issue, quote, 
sealed bills, unquote, to the value of its original capital to receive deposits, deal in bullion and commercial bills, and make secured loans. Over and above the issue of sealed bills, however, the bank issued cashier's notes. These cashier notes were the equivalent of the goldsmith's running cash notes and the forerunner of the modern Bank of England note. The decision to have running cash notes printed with blanks for names, amounts and the cashier's signature was taken on July 31, 1694, only a few days after the bank began trading. This led to complaints by some of the bank's critics who claimed that the bank, quote, was limited by Act of Parliament not to give out bills under the common seal for above £1,200,000, and if they did, every proprietor was to be obliged to make it good so that they give out bank bills with interest for but £1,200,000. But they give the cashier's notes, observe the term he uses, for all sums, ad infinitum, which neither charge the fund nor the proprietors, which seems to be a credit beyond the intention of the Act, and never practised before by any corporation, and almost a fraud on the subject. End quote. In 1946, the Bank of England was nationalised and its capital was acquired by the state. As the nation's central bank, the Bank of England has a number of functions and responsibilities. A. In the first place, it is the government's bank. In this capacity, it traditionally acted as financier to the government by floating government debt on the capital and money markets, that is, by issuing government securities and treasury bills, and generally by managing government debt. Since 1997, the bank's role as manager of the government's debt has been transferred to the Treasury, see Open Market Operations below. The bank also keeps the central government accounts, the Consolidated Fund, or Exchequer, and the National Loans Fund, and those of various government departments, and acts as an advisory body to the government on economic matters. B. The Bank of England acts as banker to the settlement banks. Any debt owed by one bank to another at the end of the day is settled by an adjustment of the respective bank's balances with the Bank of England. C. The Bank of England is responsible for the issue of banknotes, over which it has a monopoly in England and Wales. Before 1914, Bank of England notes, except for fiduciary issue of £14 million, were backed by gold and redeemable on demand. Today, however, the Bank of England note is merely a fiat standard enforced by government authority as legal tender. D. The Bank of England is responsible for the general management of the monetary system of the United Kingdom in accordance with government policy. E. The bank also manages the gold reserves and the exchange equalisation account. The exchange equalisation account is a fund set up to enable the government to manage the value of sterling in relation to other currencies by influencing exchange rates between sterling and foreign currency in accordance with government policy. For example, if those holding large amounts of sterling began selling it, the effect would be to depress the value of sterling against other currencies. If the government wished to counterbalance the efforts of this, the Bank of England would intervene in the currency markets by buying sterling. If sterling exchange rates are stronger than the government would like them to be, the bank will sell sterling, thereby lowering the exchange rates. In other words, the bank seeks to influence exchange rates by manipulating supply and demand for sterling. This mechanism is not always successful, however, as the Chancellor of the Exchequer discovered on September the 16th, 1992, quote, Black Wednesday, unquote. 
The Bank of England lost over half its foreign currency reserves, trying to maintain the value of the British pound on the foreign currency markets, but sterling still continued to fall in value against the Deutschmark. Eventually, sterling was suspended in the ERM, the very move the government had pledged itself not to take. The bank also operates the central government's daily foreign currency banking transactions through the exchange equalisation account. F. The bank has a number of international responsibilities in the modern world. For example, it participates in the work of the International Monetary Fund and International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, World Bank, both of which are agencies of the United Nations. In addition, it provides services to the central banks of non-sterling countries. It is the Bank of England, acting in accordance with government policy and in tandem with government offices and departments, such as the Treasury's Debt Management Office, that ultimately controls the supply of money in the economy. The settlement banks are linked to this central banking system and together they form one national banking system operating on the fractional reserve principle described above. There have been a number of developments and refinements of the system, though. Although the Country Bankers Act, 1826, had permitted banks outside London to issue banknotes, the Bank Charter Act, 1844, again restricted the right of note issue of private banks, ensuring that the issue of notes would ultimately be concentrated in the hands of the Bank of England. This act also limited the amount of fiduciary media that the Bank of England was permitted to issue. The fiduciary issue is the excess of banknotes issued over the amount of gold reserved to back them. In other words, it is a euphemism for fraud. The 1844 Act fixed the Bank of England's fiduciary issue at £14 million and required that this be backed only by government securities. That is to say, £14 million of the Bank of England's debt was to be backed only by £14 million of government debt. But the framers of this legislation failed to realise that a cheque is precisely the same phenomenon as a banknote, and no formal limitations were placed on the use of cheques to create money beyond the principle of leaving enough reserves to cover emergencies. Hence, the banking system has developed more systematically on the checking and credit side. It may seem much more complex today, but the system is essentially the same as that practiced by the goldsmiths, except for the fact that it is controlled by the government through the Bank of England and the Treasury. We no longer use gold and silver coins in Britain as a medium of exchange, and the money in circulation is not backed by gold or silver. This makes it much easier for the banks to inflate the money supply. Furthermore, the ease with which the government can adopt inflationary policies compared with the days when gold and silver coins were in circulation makes the temptation to do so much stronger, and few governments have resisted that temptation. But the mechanisms that have been developed for artificially inflating the money supply are so complicated, the immorality of inflating the money supply in this way is far less apparent. The government can control the creation of money for the banking system for its own advantage, and for the advantage of those groups in society to which the new money is made available. The result of inflating the money supply to finance government policies and government-favoured groups is the debasement of the monetary unit. Such government-controlled and government-licensed inflation is a form of theft. Yet, control of the money supply is essential to socialist governments, and here, under the term, quote, socialist, end quote, we must include modern conservative governments also. Without it, they would be unable to finance the implementation of socialist ideology. 
With it, they can promote and control the redistribution of wealth within society as a means of implementing party ideology. Modern British governments, both Labour and Conservative, have discouraged the use of gold as money between 1939 and 1979. Even the holding of gold as a form of money was illegal. VAT was charged in the purchase of gold bullion and coin between 1975 and January 2000. And, with the exception of British-denominated coin, capital gains tax is payable on its sale. This is because gold is an economic money. But politicians want political money that they can create and control. The government is able to achieve this in two ways. First, through the creation of fiat money, that is, money created by government authority alone. This consists of the token coin and banknotes that we usually refer to as cash. This currency is no longer backed by gold or silver. The Bank of England note is a fiat standard, that is, printed money regulated by the Treasury, enforced as legal tender by government authority, and backed only by government debt, government bonds and treasury bills. Secondly, through the Bank of England, the government is able to control the creation of bank money by the banks. This is money that exists in the form of bank deposits, subject to withdrawal by cheque, but not backed by cash. This kind of money exists only as numbers in bank accounts. Because it is transferred by cheque, it is never redeemed for cash, that is currency. Banks receiving cheques drawn on other banks put them through the clearing system in which cheques drawn on the various banks are offset against each other. Any money owed by one bank to another at the end of the day is settled by an adjustment to the respective bank's balances at the Bank of England. No cash changes hands. Consequently, there is far greater scope for the banks to create money and fraudulently redistribute wealth within society with this kind of banking system. The government uses this banking system to monetize its debt, the effect of which is to inflate the money supply. In fact, the creation of government debt is one of the principal causes of expansion of the money supply. Since 1997, a number of changes have been introduced in the way the government delegates management of the monetary and banking system. Some activities that were previously functions of the Bank of England have been transferred to other government agencies. These changes will be explained below. The system as a whole works as a government-controlled monopoly. That is, it is a government-licensed and government-regulated banking system. Although the banks are not owned or run by the government, they are subject to government control and regulation. With the exception of building societies, which are subject to supervision and control by the Building Societies Commission and the foreign banks of other EU member states, which are subject to their own country's authorisation practices, no one is permitted to accept deposits from the public in the UK as part of a deposit-taking business, that is, banking business, without authorisation from the Financial Services Authority, FSA, which is responsible for prudential supervision of the banks. Thus, although the banking system in the UK is not owned by the government, it is regulated by the government and subject to the controls exercised by the Bank of England and the FSA in accordance with government policy. In this system, bank money has the same relation to a bank's reserve assets that the goldsmith's notes had to the gold stored in its vaults. Thus, the means that the government uses to control the creation of bank money function by regulating the ratio between the bank's reserve assets and the volume of bank money in circulation. 
there are five chief means available to the government that it can use to control the money supply. These are A. The minimum reserve asset ratio or liquidity ratio. Prior to 1997, the Bank of England could require the banks to maintain a certain ratio between their eligible reserve assets or liquid assets and their bank deposits, bank money. Eligible reserve assets included cash reserves and balances with the Bank of England, treasury bills, money at call with the London money market, commercial and local authority bills eligible for re-discount at the Bank of England, company tax reserve certificates and government securities with less than a year to maturity. By altering the reserve asset ratio, the Bank of England could control the amount of bank money in circulation. If it increased the ratio, the banks were forced to reduce the amount of loans they could advance to their customers, thereby reducing the volume of bank money in circulation. By decreasing the ratio, it empowered the banks to increase advances to their customers, thereby increasing the volume of bank money in circulation. When these bank loans are spent in the economy and then redeposited in the banks, they add to the bank's reserve assets, thereby enabling the banks to advance more loans to their customers and expand the volume of bank money in circulation further. The government can also facilitate inflation of the money supply by increasing the reserves held by the banks without reducing the minimum reserve asset ratio. For example, if the government decides to increase significantly the amount of money it borrows by issuing treasury bills, short-dated government IOUs, that are sold and circulated prior to maturity at a discount, there will be an expansion of the money supply to the extent that the bills are bought by the banking sector. This is because treasury bills are considered very liquid and form an important part of the bank's reserve assets. An increase in the purchase of these bills by the banks will increase the bank's reserve assets, since, although the banks will have to reduce their balances at the Bank of England in order to pay for them initially, this money once it is spent into circulation by the government, will be redeposited in the banks, thereby restoring the bank's balances with the Bank of England once more. The bank's balances at the Bank of England will ultimately remain unchanged, therefore, but they will have a larger holding of treasury bills and thus more reserve assets on the basis of which they can expand the money supply by advancing loans, bank money, to their customers provided the sale of treasury bills does not represent an increase in government debt, but simply the renewal of existing debt as it matures, their purchase by the banks will not affect the overall reserve asset ratio of the banks, and thus there will be no expansion of the money supply. The sale of treasury bills to the general public and non-banking firms, the quote, non-bank private sector, end quote, will not affect the money supply in the same way that their sale to the banking sector would. When treasury bills are sold to the non-bank private sector, they will be paid for by checks drawn on the bank accounts of those who purchase them. This will reduce the bank's balances with the Bank of England. Once the government spends into circulation the proceeds of the sale of these bills, however, the money will be deposited in the bank accounts of the recipients and the bank's balances with the Bank of England will be restored to their previous level. There will be no change ultimately in the cash reserves held by the banks, an increase in the purchase of treasury bills by the non-bank private sector, therefore, will have a neutral effect on the money supply to the extent that it represents an increase in government debt that is not taken up by the banking sector, since the non-bank private sector cannot use treasury bills as a basis for making multiple loans to the public, thereby expanding the money supply. 
an increase in the purchase of Treasury bills by the non-bank private sector would be deflationary to the extent that it was accomplished by a decrease in purchases by the banking sector while the overall volume of bills remained constant. The effect of decreasing the minimum reserve asset ratio or of increasing the bank's reserve assets is to set in motion a process of multiple credit expansion, that is, creation of bank money. This process works in the following way. Assume there is a reserve asset or liquidity ratio of 10%. As a result of an increase in its reserve assets, Bank A makes a new loan of £100 to Mr Smith, who spends it on goods bought from Mr Jones. Mr Jones then deposits the £100 in his account at Bank B. Bank B retains 10% of this deposit, £10, as a reserve and lends out the remaining £90 to Mr Brown. Mr Brown buys £90 of goods from Mr Green. Mr Green then deposits the £90 in his bank account at Bank C. Bank C retains 10% of this deposit, £9, as a reserve and loans out the remaining £81. This process continues until the original deposit of £100 loaned out by Bank A has become a 10% reserve in the banking system on the basis of which a further £900 of bank money has been created. Long and medium-dated government securities, bonds, are not considered liquid until they are near maturity and therefore sale of these securities to the public by the government is neither deflationary nor inflationary. Money is withdrawn from the banks to pay for them, thereby reducing the bank's balances with the Bank of England. This money is then credited to the government accounts. Once it enters the economy again via government spending, it is deposited in the recipients' accounts with the banks, thereby increasing the latter's balances with the Bank of England. There is no change, ultimately, in total reserves held by the banks, therefore. The effect of such shields on the money supply is neutral. Purchase of government bonds from the market by the Bank of England, however, is inflationary. See Open Market Operations below. Prior to 1971, the banks had to maintain a 28% liquid asset ratio, of which 8% was cash, that is, coin notes and balances with the Bank of England. In 1982, this was dropped and the banks were required instead to maintain a ratio of 12.5% of eligible reserve assets to eligible liabilities. Eligible liabilities were total sterling deposits held by the non-bank sector, less time deposits with a maturity in excess of two years, and 40% of items in transmission, that is, funds being transferred from one customer to another. In fact, however, these two types of reserve requirement were broadly the same. The main differences after 1971 were that cash and bank tills was no longer considered an eligible reserve asset in government securities with less than a year to maturity, which were not previously regarded as liquid assets, were now considered eligible reserve assets. Since 1981, when statutory reserve requirements were abolished by the Thatcher government, the bank reserve asset ratio has not been fixed by the government. Between 1981 and 1997, the bank's liquidity position was supervised on an individual basis by the Bank of England, quote, prudential control, unquote, and government concentrated on interest rates as a major means of controlling the aggregate level of prices, although the Thatcher government continued to set targets for growth of the money supply until 1985. In 1997, the new Labour government transferred prudential control of the bank liquidity from the Bank of England to the Financial Services Authority 
and gave the Bank of England, quote, operational, unquote, freedom to set the rate of interest independently of government. The government, however, sets an, quote, inflation target, unquote, that is, a price inflation target, which the bank must achieve by controlling interest rates. Although formal responsibility for setting interest rates on a monthly basis has been transferred to the Bank of England, therefore, the bank is still tied to government policy. In practice, the bank's independence in setting the rate of interest, though hailed by the Labour government as a great leap forward, means very little. The difference between the system now in operation and the system in operation prior to 1997 is that the Financial Services Authority supervises the liquidity of the banks on an individual basis and the government attempts to control price inflation, that is, rising prices, by setting the, quote, inflation target, end quote, which the Bank of England is expected to meet by controlling interest rates. B. The bank rate. Before October 1972, or minimum lending rate between October 1972 and March 1997, or repo rate after March 1997, in order to explain how the modern interest rate system works, it will be helpful to explain how the system operated prior to 1997. The old bank rate, or minimum lending rate, was the rate of interest at which the Bank of England provided cash to the discount market by rediscounting first-class commercial bills, treasury bills and British government stocks with five years or less to maturity, or by lending against their security. Prior to 1997, the discount market was a group of firms, most of which were authorised banks, and all of which were members of the London Discount Market Association that traded in such short-dated bills and had a direct leading and had a direct le- and had a direct dealing relationship with the Bank of England. The minimum lending rate was made effective through open market operations. Since interest rates generally were kept in line with the minimum lending rate, any increase in the latter would lead to a falling in borrowing from the banks and a decrease in the volume of bank money in circulation. The minimum lending rate was always a penal rate of interest. One half percent above the average discount rate for treasury bills rounded up to the nearest one quarter percent. Although the Bank of England could not legally require the banks to charge their to change their base rates in line with the MLR, it could induce them to do so if the banks failed to follow the lead given by the Bank of England, they would be penalised economically. The minimum lending rate was formally abolished in 1981. Nevertheless, the Bank of England's policy towards the discount market, though more flexible, did not essentially change. The rate at which it would rediscount bills or lend against their security to the discount market was no longer officially announced or made available to the public. But the mechanism worked essentially in the same way. Thus, although officially there was no minimum lending rate, there was a de facto penal rate of interest at which the Bank of England would act as, quote, lender of last resort, end quote, to the discount market. Since August 1981, however, when the minimum lending rate ceased to be continuously posted, it has been invoked on six separate occasions. Once in 1985, once in 1990, and three times in 1992, and once in 1993. Abolition of the minimum lending rate simply meant, therefore, that the Bank of England usually preferred to act as, quote, lender of last resort, end quote, by rediscounting bills rather than by lending money to the discount houses, and that the rate at which it would rediscount bills or lend against their security 
was not continuously posted or made available to the public. By 1997, the number of discount houses had declined considerably, and in March 1997, the Bank of England declared itself ready to enter into a direct dealing relationship with a much wider range of financial institutions than previously represented by the discount houses. For example, banks, building societies and securities firms, provided certain supervisory and functional criteria are met. Firms that have a direct dealing relationship with the Bank of England through the discount market are now called, quote, counterparties, end quote, by the bank. Since 1997, the bank has also expanded the range of instruments with which it will work in the money market. The bank now deals in, quote, repos, end quote. Repo is short for, quote, sale and repurchase agreement, end quote. A repo is an agreement by one party, quote, to sell bonds or other financial instruments to another party with an agreement to repurchase the equivalent securities in future under a formal legal agreement, end quote. The range of instruments in which the bank will now deal includes repos in British government debt in sterling and foreign currency, eligible bank bills, eligible local government bills and euro debt. The repo rate, the interest rate on repos, is broadly equivalent to the old minimum lending rate. The repo rate is set monthly by the Monetary Policy Committee. C. Open market operations. This is the sale or purchase of treasury bills and government securities in the open market and operations in the repo market by the Bank of England. Open market operations will be explained here, first in terms of the system that operated prior to 1997. A number of changes have been introduced since 1997. These changes will be explained below as part of an ongoing evolution of the system operating prior to 1997. Before 1997, when the Bank of England increased the sale of long and medium-dated government securities, money would be withdrawn from the banks to pay for them. This had the effect of reducing the bank's balances with the Bank of England. If this caused the bank's balances at the Bank of England to fall below what was considered to be a safe level, the banks would be forced to call in loans to the discount houses, which obtained short-term loans from the banks in order to finance their business, quote, money at call with the discount houses, was the main reserve that banks drew upon when they were short of cash because it was the most liquid form of money market loan that could be withdrawn at a few hours' notice. Banks were required by the Bank of England to keep deposits with the discount houses of at least 2.5% of their eligible liabilities. The discount houses, unable to get funds from the banks, then had to apply to the Bank of England as, quote, lender of last resort, end quote, either to rediscount bills or borrow money against their security at the minimum lending rate. Under these conditions, the discount houses were said to be, quote, in the bank, end quote. If the minimum lending rate had gone up, the discount houses were forced to increase the rate of discount on bills, that is, reduce the price at which they tender for bills. This increase in the rate of interest on bills was then passed on to the banks in two ways. One, if the banks were unable to replenish their balances at the Bank of England sufficiently by calling in loans to the discount houses, they would sell commercial bills and treasury bills back to the discount houses in order to obtain funds, but at a reduced price, making the sale less profitable. In other words, the discount houses would get a higher rate of interest on the bills. Having to pay higher rates of interest to the discount market in this way 
induce the banks to raise their own interest rates to those who borrow from them. 2. If the banks were able to replenish their balances with the Bank of England by calling in loans to the discount house, by calling in loans to the discount houses, the new higher rate of interest on commercial and treasury bills still had the effect of driving up interest rates generally since the banks bought these bills near to maturity from the discount houses because of their liquidity. Interest rates generally rose, therefore, to compete with the rate of interest on bills. The effect of increasing the minimum lending rate, therefore, was to drive up short-term interest rates generally, thereby reducing the demand for loans and contracting the money supply. Open market selling by the Bank of England in the bond market, that is, sale of medium and long-dated securities, was thus used to support or make effective an increase in the minimum lending rate. Moreover, whether the banks rebuilt their balances at the Bank of England by calling in money loaned to the discount houses or by selling bills back to the discount houses or by a combination of both, there would still be an overall contraction in their reserves. Since money at call with the London discount market and treasury and commercial bills are classed as eligible reserve assets, if the banks were already operating at the limit of their eligible reserve asset ratio, they would be forced to reduce advances to their customers, thereby contracting the volume of bank money in circulation. Open market buying in the bond market by the Bank of England has the reverse effect. When the bank buys securities, the money it pays for them enters the economy and is deposited in the bank accounts of the recipients, thereby expanding the reserves held by the banks. This increase in reserves allows the banks to advance loans to their customers and increase the supply of bank money in circulation until the ratio between eligible reserve assets and bank money once again falls to the minimum permitted by the monetary authorities. A process of multiple credit expansion will take place. An increase in the sale of treasury bills to the banking sector by the Bank of England in open market operations will not affect the money supply directly since, when the banks buy the bills, one form of reserve asset cash balances at the Bank of England is substituted for another treasury bills. It will, however, lead to a rise in the rate of interest on treasury bills since the increased supply of bills will depress their market price. That is, the lower price paid for the bills means that the holders of the bills will receive a higher rate of return when the bills mature. A rise in the rate of interest on treasury bills will cause short-term interest rates generally to rise in order to compete with the rate on treasury bills. Open market selling by the Bank of England in the bill market, therefore, was also used to support a rise in the MLR. Increasing the rate of interest will have an indirect effect on the money supply by reducing the demand for borrowing. The sale and purchase of treasury bills and government securities on the open market by the Bank of England is really a kind of fine-tuning that the bank uses in its ongoing everyday work of managing the government's debt and controlling interest rates on behalf of the government. The real significance of open market operations for the expansion or contraction of the money supply must be seen, therefore, in the greater context of overall monetary policy. Compare minimum lending rate above and funding below. When a new issue of government bonds was made, only a proportion of the issue was sold immediately to the public. The remainder of the issue was taken up by the issue department of the Bank of England, which sold them gradually over the following months. This continuous release of government bonds via the stock market was referred to as the, quote, tap, end quote. Treasury bills are issued partly by tender and partly on, quote, tap, end quote. The 
stamp bills were taken up by government departments with money in hand, including the issue department of the Bank of England and the exchange equalisation account, and by certain overseas monetary authorities. Issues of treasury bills sold to the public are by weekly order or by weekly tender. Any bills not bought by the public were bought by the discount houses. The Bank of England could always ensure that the discount houses had enough cash to purchase the treasury bills allotted to them in the weekly tender by lending to the discount houses or rediscounting bills. This was how the bank acted as lender of last resort. This mechanism ensured that the government could always borrow as much as it needed from the market. By lending to the discount market or by rediscounting bills, the Bank of England was lending indirectly to the government by creating the cash to enable the market to fund the exchequer through the purchase of treasury bills. By lending to the exchequer indirectly through the market in this way, the Bank of England is able to control short-term interest rates, for example, by deliberately selling enough bills to keep the discount market short of cash, the bank could enforce the MLR. As explained above, since 1997, a number of changes have been introduced into this system. There are no longer any specialist discount houses and the Bank of England has a direct dealing relationship with a much wider range of firms. Since 1997, it has also conducted a significant proportion of its business in gilt repos, the bank now uses both bills and gilt repos in its money market operations. The bank's combined bill and repo business provides control over liquidity in the money market. That is, the bank provides cash to the money market or keeps cash short, depending on the policy being pursued, by repoing gilts and rediscounting eligible bills in open market operations. In the second quarter of 1999, 55% of the bank's business was in gilt repos and 31% in bills. Essentially, the system works in the same way as it did prior to 1997, but has evolved in terms of the money instruments the bank is prepared to use and in terms of the range of counterparties with which it is prepared to deal in order to achieve its aims. Another change introduced in 1997 was the transfer of the Bank of England's role as the government agent for debt management, cash management and oversight of the gilt market to the Treasury. In April 1998, the Debt Management Office was set up as an executive agency of the Treasury and took over management of the government's debt. Prior to this, the sale of government bonds, medium and long-dated securities, was managed by the Bank of England. This aspect of the bank's work has now been transferred to the Treasury's Debt Management Office. Government stock is now sold by the DMO at scheduled auctions or on, quote, tap, end quote, to DMO-recognised stock market traders known as GEMMS, known as GEMS, Gilt Edge Market Makers, who then sell it on to brokers and clients. As part of the same framework for change introduced in 1997, the government also stated its intention to transfer responsibility for cash management from the Bank of England to the Treasury. When this takes place, the DMO will take over the Bank of England's responsibility for issuing Treasury bills. However, the original timetable for this transfer of responsibility to the DMO was not met and the new timetable scheduled the change as taking place gradually in the first quarter of 2000. Although the first issue of Treasury bills managed by the DMO took place on the 14th of January 2000, the completion of the transfer of responsibility to the DMO is, at the time of writing, now scheduled for the second quarter of 2000. D. Funding 
Open market operations are an important part of the everyday work of the monetary authorities in our modern government-controlled economy. It is in the context of overall government economic policy, however, that they become significant as a mechanism for implementing government control of the economy. As we have seen, this mechanism was used to support the minimum lending rate. It can also be seen at work when the Bank of England engages in funding. Funding operations are undertaken in order to reduce the amount of reserve assets available to the banks, thereby forcing them to reduce the volume of bank money in circulation. This is done by converting the government's short-term debt into long-term debt. The selling of more long- and medium-dated bonds, coupled with a reduction in the sale of treasury bills, which are short-dated and thus very liquid, has the effect, over a sustained period, of withdrawing treasury bills from circulation and replacing them with bonds that are less liquid. Since treasury bills form a significant part of the bank's eligible reserve assets, this operation, over a period of time, reduces the bank's reserves. In order to keep their liquidity at a level that is considered safe, therefore, they are forced to reduce the amount of loans they make, thereby contracting the volume of bank money in circulation. The conversion of the government's long- and medium-term debt into short-term debt, or unfunding, that is, the sale of more treasury bills, and purchase of government securities has a reverse effect. More reserve assets are made available to the banks. This enables the banks to increase deposits, that is, advance more loans, and expand the volume of bank money in circulation. In other words, it enables them to inflate the money supply. E. Special deposits. Since 1958, the Bank of England has had the right to require the banks to hold special deposits with it, equal to a given amount of their total deposits. These special deposits, which were first used in 1960, earned interest at the Treasury bill rate, but they could not be withdrawn and were thus completely illiquid. By requiring these special deposits, the Bank of England effectively freezes part of the bank's reserves. This forces the banks to cut back on loans to their customers, thereby contracting the money supply. When special deposits are released or unfrozen, the effect is reversed. The bank's reserves are effectively increased and this enables them to advance more loans to their customers, expanding the money supply in the process. These are the various means of controlling the money supply available to the government. Not all of these mechanisms are in use at the same time. As explained above, since 1981, the bank's reserve asset ratios have not been fixed by the government. The liquidity position of the banks is now supervised by the FSA on an individual basis. Quote, prudential control, end quote. The government no longer seeks to control growth of the money supply directly. Instead, it seeks to control the effects of monetary inflation, that is, rising prices, by setting an inflation target, that is, a price inflation target, which the Bank of England is responsible for meeting through its control of interest rates. This has an indirect effect on the money supply. By controlling the cost of borrowing, that is, interest rates, the Bank of England affects the demand for money and therefore the amount of bank money that is ultimately created by the banks by advancing loans to their customers. This means, however, that the potential for expansion of the money supply by the banks is far greater now than it has ever been. Of course, The governments cannot demand that banks increase advances to their customers, nor can government insist 
that people make use of the credit facilities offered by the banks. Growth of the volume of bank money must be initiated by individuals and companies who wish to borrow from the banks. The volume of money in circulation, like all other economic goods, is determined by demand as well as supply. However, the government can create the conditions that will make such borrowing attractive to individuals and companies. It can facilitate the creation of bank money by permitting the banks to satisfy the demand for more borrowing and, since the banks make their profits by lending, they will, and do, under such circumstances, seek to induce the public to borrow from them as much as possible. The consequences of the government's relaxation of monetary controls, therefore, will usually, if not inevitably, lead to expansion of the money supply. Furthermore, the government can also initiate the process of monetary expansion itself by its own borrowing and spending policies. It is sometimes claimed by economists that, in the modern economy, the government and the Bank of England do not and cannot control growth of the money supply, which is said to be endogenous. That is, it is argued that the size of the money supply is determined by the demand for money, not by the monetary authorities. The money supply is said to be exogenous if it is fixed by the monetary authorities. However, growth of the money supply can be described as endogenous in the UK today because restrictions on the bank's ability to create bank money are much less stringent now than they have ever been before. The monetary authorities no longer set money growth targets and concentrate instead on interest rates as a means of controlling the aggregate level of prices. The only direct control over bank lending is now prudential control, which restricts the bank's ability to expand the money supply by creating bank money much less rigorously than the previous statutory reserve ratios did. Under the present system, the argument that the government cannot control growth of the money supply because the money supply is endogenous is tantamount to saying that the government cannot control growth of the money supply because it does not attempt to control growth of the money supply. Instead, it attempts to control rising prices. That is, it sets a price inflation target that the Bank of England has to meet by controlling interest rates, which affect the money supply indirectly by influencing the demand for money. The modern banking system is thus far more complex than that practiced by the goldsmiths but it is essentially based on the same principle, the fraudulent creation of money, monetization of debt. Despite the disclaimers issued by Prime Ministers, Chancellors of the Exchequer and any number of government spokesmen, it is the government, through its banking and monetary policies, that is ultimately responsible for the expansion of the money supply, that is, inflation in modern Britain. The significance of the changes initiated in 1997 to the way the banking system works, is not very great in terms of the overall effect on the government's management of the economy. The new framework introduced in 1997 by the Labour government means that some of the tasks formerly undertaken by the Bank of England on behalf of the government have been transferred to the Treasury. Although the Bank of England has, quote, operational, end quote, independence from the government in setting interest rates, it is still constrained by its responsibilities to meet the government's price inflation target. The banking system has been modernised, but not essentially changed in principle. It remains a government-licensed and government-controlled monopoly. Section 7. How the government benefits A chief beneficiary of this banking system 
is the government itself, since it is able to use the system to help it fund its policies and extend its influence and control over the economy. Those to whom the government allocates the wealth it is able to expropriate from the nation via the banking system also benefit, although who these are will vary depending on which party is in power. Under traditional socialist governments, direct government subsidies have been used to benefit privileged groups and industries, usually unionised and manufacturing industry. This, in turn, helps to keep non-unionised labour and small private firms under control by making it difficult for them to compete on fair terms with nationalised industries and government-sponsored and government-subsidised firms. The growth of nationalised and unionised industry is a result. Conservative governments tend to favour private enterprise since they generally discourage the creation of government-subsidised industries, at least relatively in comparison with traditional socialist governments. Under conservative governments, therefore, the growing money supply tends to be tapped more by those who are prepared to finance business by borrowing at artificially low rates of interest from the commercial banking system. This tends to encourage the expansion of private enterprise. In either case, the creation of a boom leads ultimately to recession. Government bureaucracy, of course, is also a prime beneficiary of this system, since the continual expansion of government control over society means the continual expansion of government departments and the creation of new departments. This vast growth of government administration, that is, government control over our lives and society, is not cheap. The expanding civil service has become a major, quote, industry, end quote, in our society, to use an inappropriate term, since it is not industrious, that is, productive, in the economic sense of the term, consuming a vast amount of the resources generated by the productive sectors of the economy. Total government expenditure in 1993 accounted for over 43% of the GNP. Government has been able to grow to this enormous size in a relatively free society because it has been able to expropriate the wealth of the nation. Although the greater part of the funds expropriated from the nation by the government is raised by taxation, and increasingly by indirect taxation, taxation alone, because of its unpopularity, is not able to provide the modern state with all the resources it requires without risking the government's rejection at a general election. The mechanism that the government uses to fund the shortfall between what it raises in taxes and what it wishes to spend works through its monopolistic control of the fractional reserve banking system. Furthermore, as will be explained below, economic booms generated by inflation of the money supply contribute to the government's ability to raise revenue by means of taxation. The government itself benefits directly from this system in four ways. A. By inflating the money supply, the government is able to open up a cheap source of credit with which to fund its ever-growing spending requirements. As we have seen, in 1971, the bank's liquid-asset ratio was reduced from 28% to a 12.5% reserve asset ratio. In the following decade, there was severe inflation, the cost of living more than tripled, and the government's borrowing requirement grew exponentially. M3 grew by 27% and M4 by 22.3% in that year. 
and the rise in the cost of living reached a peak in 1975. The retail price index showed an increase of 24.2%. Between 1970 and 1981, the CGBR, Central Government Borrowing Requirement, increased from £13 million to £12,956 an increase of nearly 100,000%. Even when monetary inflation and rising prices are taken into account, this is still a prodigious increase in government debt. During the Thatcher government's period of office, an attempt was made to put a stop to this economically disastrous method of raising government revenue. By the late 1980s, there was a central government financial surplus and the government was able to repay some of its debt. This prudent policy was abandoned in the early 1990s. The total government deficit, PSBR, for 1993 was an enormous £46 billion. Obviously, the government needs to borrow this money as cheaply as possible, and it is able to create the right conditions for such massive borrowing by expanding the money supply, thereby reducing the real rate of interest, that is, the nominal rate of interest minus the rise in the cost of living. Price inflation. In fact, the government is able to expand the money supply and reduce the rate of interest at the same time by borrowing on, the, by borrowing on this enormous scale. Government borrowing, therefore, is itself a contributing cause to the trade cycle today. But there is a cost to the government's obtaining cheap loans in this way. During the 1980s, government benefited from the lower real costs of borrowing created by inflation. In the 1980s, however, the markets responded by building an inflation premium into the real cost of long-term borrowing that was in excess of the actual rise in the cost of living, price inflation. As a result, real interest rates rose sharply. The inflation period of cheap borrowing led ultimately to an increase in the real cost of long-term borrowing. B. The government benefits from this process of inflation in another important way. In an inflationary economy, the debtor benefits at the expense of his creditor because the money with which he eventually pays off his debt is debased money, worth less in real terms that is, in terms of purchasing power, than when it was borrowed. Interest does not normally compensate creditors for this loss of purchasing power, since, as already mentioned, during times of inflation, that is, in the early period of the trade cycle, real interest rates are usually reduced to artificially low levels. Hence, by inflating the money supply, the government not only opens up a cheap source of credit, but also ensures that it is able to pay off its debts with debased money. This means that the government's creditors are, in effect, plundered of their capital. In the case of creditors holding government bonds that never mature, this situation is much worse. War loan securities are a good example of this. These were issued in 1917 at 5% and converted in 1932 to 3.5%. As a result of inflation and higher interest rates since World War II, holders of these bonds lost out significantly between 1948 and 1981. Inflation wiped out the value of the yield in the bonds for investors who held on to them and higher interest rates relative to pre-war rates reduced their market value so that investors who sold their stock had to bear capital losses. During this period, the government 
in effect plundered, in one way or another, the resources of those who invested in these war bonds. C. Another way in which the government benefits from this banking system is its ability to increase tax receipts in a booming economy created by inflation. Some economists claim that, although the share of the gross domestic product, GDP, spent by the government has grown over the past century, there has been a fall in the value of the government's debt relative to the size of the economy over the same period. With the exception of some heavy periods of borrowing, for example the inflationary 1970s, the growth of government, therefore, has been financed mainly by taxation. Government spending, therefore, has nothing to do with the government's control of the monetary system as long as it is covered by tax receipts, asset sales and borrowing. In short, because the growth of government over the past century has been financed mainly by taxation, it has very little, if anything, to do with the monetary system. However, this argument fails to take account of the fact that a significant proportion of the taxes raised over this period has been generated by inflationary booms. For example, between 1950 and 1975, the value of the British pound declined by 78% and the cost of living increased by 345%. Even during the anti-inflationary Thatcher decade, the money supply nearly doubled. The increased tax revenues received by government in an inflationary economy are closely linked with such growth of the money supply. How? The effect of inflating the money supply is to create a boom, a period of artificial prosperity, that is, a period in which people think that they have much more wealth than in fact they do have. This illusion is created by the expansion of the money supply and the consequent easy availability of credit in the economy. People act as though they have more wealth when, in fact, they only have more money, money that is constantly depreciating in value and therefore increasingly represents less wealth. Remember that increase in the money supply creates a situation in which the same total amount of wealth within the economy is represented by a greater supply of money, but in which wealth is being redistributed to those who initially have access to the newly created money. The artificial and misleading stimulation of the economy created by inflation of the money supply leads to increased business activity, greater spending, etc. And, for a while, the economy looks buoyant. This increased economic activity within the economy leads to increased tax receipts for the government, even though income tax rates may be falling, as was the case in the late 1980s, when increased tax revenues generated by a booming economy contributed to a public sector debt repayment, PSDR. Government-licensed and government-generated inflation of the money supply, therefore, not only brings in funds to the government via borrowing, it leads to greater revenues from taxation. This situation is extremely deceptive, however. The extra tax revenue accruing to the government during such a boom is not the result of the creation of wealth, but rather of greater capital consumption. That is, it is a tax on the consumption of resources generated by the redistribution of wealth, not a tax on the creation of wealth. The government is effecting a redistribution of wealth within the economy by inflating the money supply, or by permitting the banks to inflate the money supply, and raising extra taxes from the process. 
which it can then further use to redistribute the wealth of the nation. But wealth is not being created. The greater profits made in this kind of booming economy are not the results of genuine growth, but rather of an artificially created illusion of growth. Greater profits are being made because people are unwittingly consuming their capital, not because the economy is experiencing genuine growth. This is why booms are followed by recessions. The economy has to adjust to a situation in which there is less capital available within the economy, and therefore less wealth. And hence, standards of living generally must go down. Any tax based on this illusion of greater wealth is really a tax not on increase, but on capital. It is the failure to see this link between the illusion of greater wealth, capital consumption, wealth redistribution and increased tax receipts generated by a booming economy that has led some economists to argue that because the growth of government over the past century has been financed mainly by taxation, it has very little, if anything, to do with the monetary system. The increased tax revenues received by government in an inflationary economy are linked with the inflationary process itself and therefore with the government control of the monetary system. Such tax receipts constitute a form of expropriation of the nation's wealth by means of monetary debasement. The government further benefits from this system because it is able to use the system to exert a controlling influence over the economy and government control over the economy has contributed significantly to government control over society generally. As a result of its exploitation of the monetary and fiscal systems, government has become the chief economic actor in the economy. What other industry can spend 43% of the GNP and is thus able to influence and control the economy in accordance with its own policies? Taken together, the monetary and fiscal systems provide the state with enormous power over society. Government not only raises funds cheaply, pays off its debts with depreciated money and taxes the wealth of the nation, it also becomes a major influence in our lives and acquires considerable control over society generally through the spending power that it can exert on the economy. The effects of such government influence on the economy are extremely damaging. For example, large sectors of the economy become dependent on the government and the more dependent the economy is on government, the more government is able to influence the economy for its own purposes. These purposes may be politically rational, for example, the creation of an enormous military machine by the Soviet Union, or the creation of government-sponsored and subsidized jobs on a massive scale by socialist governments in Western countries. But economically, they are extremely debilitating, as was evident in Soviet Russia by the shortage of basic foodstuffs. Such problems are endemic in government-controlled economies to a greater or lesser degree. The effects of government influence on the British economy are not as extreme or severe as the effects of government interference in the economies of the Soviet countries were, since the British government's control of the economy is not nearly as total as was the state's control over the economies of the Soviet nations. But there are effects, with the result that the economy is sluggish and inefficient, and British standards of living are lower than they otherwise would be. Examples of this effect can be seen in Britain in the nationalised health service, 
which lags behind privately funded systems in societies with enterprise economies that are more developed than the British economy, and in the state education system, which also lags behind the private systems both in Britain and in other countries with more fully developed enterprise economies. Government today has massive spending power at its disposal, which it is able to use to influence the economy and thereby exercise greater control over society. And such influence and control is always achieved at the expense of individual freedom. We have also seen that total government expenditure in 1993 accounted for over 43% of the GNP. If the proportion of the GNP spent by the government continues to grow at the rate that it grew in the 20th century, the kinds of economic catastrophe experienced in Soviet Russia will become more commonplace in British society and, doubtless, with the forming of the European Union in Europe generally. The provision of government-funded services that are free or virtually free at the point of delivery effectively prices private competitors out of the market, destroys consumer choice, at least for the average person, and creates uncompetitive and second-rate monopoly industries that are seldom good value for the money spent on them and serve the interests of those employed in them rather than the general public, which ultimately pays for them. Such government influence in the economy cripples private enterprise and holds down general standards of living. The power that the government exerts on the economy in this way affects all of us, either directly or indirectly, and plays an important part in determining our general standard of living and the level of prosperity and economic freedom we enjoy. Government manipulation of the economy through government-created and government-licensed expansion of the money supply is a means of taxing the nation's capital of expropriating the private wealth of the nation by borrowing at artificially cheap rates of interest and repaying government debt with devalued money and by creating an illusion of wealth and prosperity on the basis of which government can then increase its tax receipts. These methods of raising government revenue are fundamentally unjust and contribute significantly to the growth of government control over our lives and society. Government manipulation of the economy in this way is, quite simply, immoral. It is a form of theft and forbidden by the law of God. Section 8. The Money Supply and the Retail Price Index The Retail Price Index is not a reliable indication of the rise in the aggregate level of prices. It is an index of price increases for certain goods. What goods are included in the retail price index is a political decision. The government tries to keep certain goods out of it because they give a more realistic indication of what the government is doing to the money supply. Thus, the prices of houses are kept out and the Thatcher government was keen to have the interest payments on mortgages taken out also. This was because the increase in house prices during the late 1980s was a gave a more realistic indication of the inflation figures, that is, expansion of the money supply. But house prices should feature in the British Retail Price Index, even if they do not feature in the price indexes of other countries, since Britain is, or at least was during the Thatcher government's term of office, a big house-buying nation, compared with most European countries. 
And surely a country's retail price index should be geared to the buying priorities and patterns of its own people, not the irrelevant patterns of people in other countries. The Thatcher government's arguments for keeping house prices out of the retail price index because other countries do not include them was preposterous. Much of the inflation that occurred under the Thatcher government's second and third terms was camouflaged by two factors. First, the general growth of economic activity generated during Thatcher's premiership, and secondly, the proportion of overall inflation, that is, increase of the money supply, that was absorbed by the housing market, which, as we have seen, was not properly represented in the retail price index. The retail price index is thus misleading as an indicator of the real effects of inflation. Indeed, it often serves to camouflage the real inflation figures, that is, expansion of the money supply, which give a true indication of how government is debasing the currency or permitting other government-licensed institutions, banks, to debase the currency. For example, the money supply figures for April 1990 are as follows. M4 rose over this month alone by £1.865 billion, 6% seasonally adjusted, 4% not seasonally adjusted. The 12-month growth rate of the economy The 12-month growth rate of the money supply, M4, at the beginning of 1990, was 18%. This is the official Bank of England figure. During this period, not all prices rose by 18%. Some did not rise that much. Others rose more than 18%. While the growth in the retail price index reached a high point of just under 11% in 1990, the real inflation figures, that is, growth of the money supply, M4, was running at 18%, and it had been running at around that figure, or slightly better, for several years. 14.1% in 1987, 16.9% in 1988, and 18.1% in 1989. Increases in house prices during this period were far higher than the official inflation, that is, price inflation figures suggested by the retail price index. There was also during this period a redistribution of the nation's wealth, which the Retail Price Index is unable to reflect, nor are there other indices that can reflect such redistributive effects on inflation. Such redistribution of the nation's wealth, that is, redistribution of wealth resulting from government-licensed and government-managed debasement of the money supply, is an abuse of the government's authority and power and a transgression of the Eighth Commandment, which it is the state's duty to uphold and enforce according to the Christian scriptures. Section 9. The Consequence of Monetary Inflation for Society As we have seen, when there is an increase in the money supply, the value of each unit of money falls, other things being equal. This is because there is more money chasing the same supply of goods. Prices rise as the purchasing power of each unit of money decreases. This is what happens. Those with the new money spend it into circulation. They are able to purchase goods and services at today's prices with the new money. As the new money enters the economy, the market responds to the new situation of a larger money supply and prices rise. Those who do not have the use of the new money then have to pay higher prices for the goods and services they require, though their income has not risen accordingly. Those with the new money benefit at the expense of those who are least able to afford it. 
Since the value of the monetary unit, its purchasing power, depreciates against the rising price level, those who suffer are people on fixed incomes who do not have the political muscle to secure an increase in income commensurate with the rising price level. This includes people who are not in government-favoured trades and professions or members of powerful trade unions, which can bargain with government and make sure their members are among the privileged number who receive some of the newly created money. It also includes people like pensioners who receive fixed incomes, those who are unable to defend themselves against government-generated inflation, are invariably the ones who have to bear the brunt of it. The problem does not stop with the debasement of currency and rising prices, however. Inflation often leads to a debasement in the quality of goods and services offered for sale also. In an inflationary economy, businesses that do not receive some of the newly created money find it increasingly difficult to compete in the face of rising prices. They are faced with two alternatives. Raise prices themselves or cut the quality of goods and services offered for sale. If prices are raised, sales will probably drop because those who buy their goods will also be feeling the effects of higher prices. Unless, of course, they are part of the group favoured with the newly created money. This may lead to firms going out of business because they are unable to compete at higher prices with firms that are subsidised with the new money. In order to keep costs of production down and compete with government-favoured groups, viz. government-subsidised industries and companies and those who have access to the new money, Manufacturers may decide to cut corners or use materials of an inferior quality. As a result, the quality of goods and services goes down. This is the kind of thing that happens in an inflationary economy. Debasement of the money supply often leads to the debasement of the quality of goods and services offered for sale also. Ultimately, no one gains from this kind of monetary inflation since the inevitable consequences of sustained debasement of the currency is the squandering of the scarce resources available to the economy and hence eventually recession and a general lowering of standards of living.